The following conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at Major League Baseball's Play Ball Park in Los Angeles. All right, L.A., we're back again. How y'all doing? And, and welcome to another live episode of Black Diamonds, Untold Stories of the Negro Leagues. I'm Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I got to tell you, you know, it, doing this podcast is like having children. You're not supposed to have favorite children, but you always have one that you like more than the other. You love them both. <laughs> you love them all. But you always got one that you like a little bit more than the other. And for this episode, I got to tell you, this is personal. This hits home because to do this inside this exhibit here at Playball Park, inside the Negro Leagues baseball exhibit here at Playball Park, with two of my friends who were part of the Negro Leagues, who every time they come to an all-star game, they have their own signings that they are obligated to do as part of their appearance here at the all-star game. But every year, they make their way over to this exhibit and they meet people and they sign autographs because this is home for them. And so I am thrilled to welcome former Negro Leaguer Sam Allen and my Cubano friend, hails from the, the great country of Cuba, my friend, Mr. Pedro Sierra. Guys, I want to welcome you both to, to Black Diamonds. And Sam, I want to start with you. Talk a little bit about your experience playing in the Negro Leagues and, and what that meant to you. Playing in the Negro Leagues meant, matter of fact, it was my life. It was the greatest thing, the greatest accomplishment that I ever made in my life. It was the answer to my prayer to be a ball player. And I guess God said, well, you might not be a major league ball player, but you'll be a Negro League ball player. And playing in the Negro League, to me, was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Now, it's more so now than it was when I, was, when I played, because I played in the Negro League from part of 1956 the full year 1957, I played, 56 I played part of the year with the Memphis Red Sox. Mm -hmm. And 57, I joined the Kansas City Monarchs. I played a full season. Matter of fact, I led the league in run scored in, in 57. Mm -hmm. And in 1958, I went back with the Monarchs. But what happened, Willard Brown, who had played with the Monarchs in 45 and played in, with the uh, St. Louis Browns in 47, he came back to the Monarchs in 1958. Oh, wow. So he took my job. So I <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I can tell you now, to lose your job to Willard Brown is not yeah. the worst thing well, in the world. I know. Yeah. You don't have to tell me. Yeah. Look, you have to tell me because he's in about three Hall of Fame. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. So. And for those of you who may not have ever heard that name, Willard home, home run, run, run Brown. Home he, run. Was, he was the first one to hit a home run in the American League. That's first, right. First African American. And, and that's American absolutely League. right. And, and Josh Gibson nicknamed him Home Run Brown. Yeah. And if Josh Gibson nicknamed you Home Run Brown, 
you probably got some power. And Willard Brown was an, he was an amazing outfielder for the Kansas City Monarchs yeah. who could flat out do it all in Puerto Rico. When he went to play in Puerto Rico, his nickname was Ese Hombre, yeah. that man. Right, that right, man. Right. And he won the Triple Crown in Puerto Rico yeah. twice. Yeah. So for the older Puerto Rican baseball fan, Willett Brown was as beloved as the great Roberto Clemente. Right, right. Yes, so right. you had to lose your job to Willett Brown. There's yeah. no shame whatsoever <laughs> so, in that. And uh, So I moved on in 58 to the Raleigh Tigers. Now that was the year I, I, I got to say I was bitter with... Uh, the owner of the, of the Raleigh, because we had some money issues, and he left us in West Virginia. A lot of things happened, but the owners gave us a place to play, so I was able to get the time in playing. So later years, you learn how to forgive and forget. Mm -hmm. But I was real bitter with him because he left me stranded up in Welch, West Virginia in 1958. And I had to send home to get money to get home. Yeah. But yeah. uh, in in '58, uh, it, it, playing with Raleigh wasn't like playing with Kansas City because Kansas City was a team that uh, they were well paid and were well organized. And uh, but uh, you had a chance to play. In other words, playing baseball is is it's a difficult game. Now we talk about eating and traveling, see baseball, you, you sleep on the bus, you go to some restaurants you can't eat, and you get a couple of dollars a day for meal. But when everything is said and done, you had to face the pitcher. <laughs> He's throwing that fastball. You had, you had to bat. Now, see, when the fans pay to come to see a game, they don't know if you've been up all night. They don't care. Or if you got... And they, and, and they didn't care. And if you got cramps in your stomach, you got to perform. You still got to perform. Yeah. See, yeah. And, and what you got to do, you got your mind on is, if you don't hit the ball, you're going home. See, now, in the Negro League, towards the middle of the season, if you were playing outfield and you were the light-hitting outfielder, you were going home because what we would do, if Pedro pitched tonight, tomorrow night, we put him in the outfield. Yeah. After the season, we cutting back on that money. See, so but I was fortunate enough every year to finish up the season every year with a team. So that made it, I had something going for me. Yeah. 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 Now Pedro, you came from Cuba <coughs> to this country, and you joined the Negro Leagues in what year? In 1954, I played with the Indianapolis Clowns. Yeah. 54, so you were right behind the great Henry Aaron. Henry Aaron had just left a couple years before you got there, but Mamie Johnson was there. Right, right. One of the women who played in the Negro Leagues, there were three women who played in the Negro Leagues, Tony Stone, Mamie Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan. So Mamie is there right. when you get there. Yeah, one, one thing that I, is funny, I'm way ahead with that man and, and uh, Hank Aaron. We had met at the Negro Museum in 2000. And I went up to him and I said, Mr. Aaron, you and I have something in common. He said, what do you mean? I said, you played for the clowns in 52 and I played for them in 54, okay? <laughs> and then after, every time we saw each other, 
doing the all-star uh, thing, I say, hey, Mr. Clown is a clown. <laughs> but uh, like I said, I, I, I did come, I was a young kid at the age of 16, coming here, and I had to have permission from my father, you know, uh, and they talked to him about who I was going to be playing for. It was Oscar Charleston, who was a very well-known player in Cuba. About 90% of the Negro League players. Oh, that don't had, had, had That's my friend Amos yeah, Otis yeah, over there. Yeah, <laughs> 90% of the Negro League players at that time had played baseball in Cuba. And we were very well-known players. They had to play very, very great capacity player. So those of us young kids knew that we had the opportunity to play At that time, we wouldn't say La Liga Negra. We would say La Liga de Color. But we didn't use that, you know. But it was all of us in Cuba. Baseball was their thing. So everything was, we knew about Oscar Charleston. You know, my idolized guys in, that played baseball in Cuba in my neighborhood, uh, uh, Rafael Almeida and my sons that had played with Cincinnati. So baseball was my dream. I didn't want to be a a boxer, my dad was a boxer. I was gonna be a baseball <laughs> player. And I had promised my mom before she passed, I'm gonna be a baseball player, professional. You don't have to iron clothing. But I had dedicated, you know, that a dream. And I was lucky, you know, that I was a scout in, in, in Cuba that recommended me to the Negro League. And I went to Oscar Charleston, which was a great experience as a young kid, you know, played the nurturing approach that they had toward young players. Okay? And it was more nurturing knowing that Oscar Charleston, he tried to speak Spanish, you know, he come to the, <laughs> come to the mound and said, Chico, hombre no gusta curva. I mean, the guy doesn't like curva. Say, Mr. I know English. Say, oh, no, okay, well, I'm, I'm telling you. But it was that. They, they, they worked, if you want to call impact for me, on the Negro League, even though I knew English when I came to this country, but I had never heard the N-word. I didn't know what that meant, okay? So, when the guys told me, as a Cuban guy sitting there told me, said, but you know, you gotta concentrate on baseball. So when the guys came in there and said the N-word to me, I don't think I did. Chico, you know all English, you know, so I get to me, and I cost him back in Spanish. Okay? And they say, what the heck is he doing? But I mean, that was it. And it was a great experience to know that you had that, that they were always telling you, listen, watch it. I learned from the Negro League, respect the manager, respect the coaches, respect the, your fellow players, and above all, respect the game. Okay? It wasn't easy to play in the Negro League, because you play today in New York, tomorrow you're in Miami, Florida, the next day you go back to Charlotte, the next day you go to Chicago, the next day you go to Wyoming. <laughs> We played from a cow pasture field, rodeo field to a Major League ballpark, $100 a day, a month rather. And then, you don't, you don't sometimes you have to sleep in the bus. Well, you know, that. Okay, all night, it's hot, open the windows and the bus was harder outside than inside, okay? All that traveling, but it was a great experience. I was, I was forming my, you know, my dream to become being a baseball player, okay? And that's what I loved. When I went back home, I told my dad, 
factory. That's where you want to be. Yes, I'm going to do that. And you have to continue. Okay? And, I, and it, that's the thing that, that legacy that I carry with me, the shoulder of those who I rode before I got past, you know, the Negro League, I'll never forget. I'm very proud of that. How, how excited are you for our friend, Minnie Minoso, ah. to finally be inducted into the National Baseball Hall right. of Fame, particularly as a fellow Cuban. Right, exactly. What, what does that mean to you? It is, it is very meaningful to me, the fact that I knew Minnie back home. Minnie had married one of my friend's aunt in the 50s. I already had played in the Negro Leagues. I had, he came in my neighborhood and I met him, just hello and goodbye, that's it, simple as that, okay? But at those years, I used to pitch better in practice in the Cuban Winter League, and I was pitching for a team called Havana Red Lions. So when I saw him in the book, hello, many, hello, you know, simple as that. Then the last year, 58 to 59, I pitched for this team, Marianal Tigers. Mm-hmm. So we got to talk a lot more, more about my participation in the Negro League. And he said, socio, that's partner, socio, socio is his word. You need to go see Papa Joe Cambria. Papa Joe Cambria was a Washington Senator-based Cuban scout that sent everybody to play for the Senator he signed. Go to his office. I'll talk to him. So I went, went to go, come and go, come and go. But the, the winter league's over. I still kept going to Joe Cambria. Okay? Now, in May 1959, in Montemay, after the season of start, he called me and says, come to my office, I got something for you. Referred by many. I had a contract to go to the Sanford Greyhounds in the Forest State League. A week after that, I was released. The team was up. I came to a play uncle that I had to live in, in, in Washington. When many saw me in Washington, when he came to, to play, he said, no. You can't have that. They talked to the senator, and I got resigned. I mean, it's, it's a very. Then he became not only my friend, my counselor. You know, he used to gave me a lot of advice when I used to go to his house in Washington. Because we played dominoes, have a couple of beers. But he said to me, the most important thing that you might have is the legacy that you carry, have been part of the Negro League. Okay, what you do inside the field, outside the field, reflects that. Reflects your team, wherever you came from. Don't brag about how good you are. Just, just be respectful of the game. Okay? And through that, through the years we stayed together in touch with that. And, and very, very sad what happened, because we met you know, through the years. But um, it's the pride that I feel. I mean, we had Martin the Eagle. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's that, in there, we had Tony Perez. You know, another guy. But then to have many, you know, accomplishes Jose Mendes and Torrente, it's something that's very exciting, you know, and it's especially because he has been so close to me for this year. And because of him, I finished accomplishing my baseball dream as a baseball player. Yeah, and, and I think it's important people to understand that Minnie Minoso, who was up for induction in 2006, the same year that my friend, the late great Buck O'Neill, yes. missed by one vote, and it's almost poetic 
that they're both going into the Hall of Fame together, even though both of them are no longer with us. And, right. and it's bittersweet from that stand, yes. standpoint because the Hall of Fame missed an opportunity to have two of the most dynamic personalities yes. in this game That's right. to be there live to share what that moment meant. And we missed that opportunity. But Minnie Minoso was essentially the Afro-Latino Jackie Robinson. He, he instilled that same level of hope and belief that that Afro-Latino ball player could have an opportunity, as he would tell me, sitting in our conference room at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, he bypassed other more lucrative opportunities to play in the Negro Leagues with the New York Cubans because he felt like this would be his opportunity to pursue the American dream. Right. Yeah. yeah, he yeah. wanted the Ameri- what was believed to be the American dream, and he got that opportunity. He is signed by Cleveland initially, right. and Cleveland never gave him a fair shake. No, no. The best thing that ever happened, they traded him the to Chicago. the Chicago White Sox. Right. Yeah, and they those, traded him to the Chicago right, White Sox, right. and he become he put the goal you know, in the go-go he, White he, Sox. In the, the, he won, guess, maybe 10 games with the, with the, with the, with the Cleveland, but the, the big accomplishment is that he was the first black Latino in the major league in 49. It was the first one. So then all of us, hey, he made it. You know, all with, you know and it, it, this is a thing. Like he said, he's a, he's a, you know, the Cuban Jackie Robinson. Now, now, Sam, I think you did a little barnstorming also with a guy that people probably heard his name before, Leroy Satchel Page. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what that was like, because I never got to meet Satchel. I felt like I knew him through all the stories that I've heard. And, of course, being around Buck and he and Buck were so close. But what was it like hanging out with Satchel Paige? So Satchel, Satchel was, was, was a great guy. He was charismatic. Satchel, and, and you hear, you, you've been around Buck O'Neill. Well, being around Satchel Paige was like being around Buck O'Neill. Satchel Paige, matter of fact, Satchel Paige was, was, was into baseball, same, you could almost compare him to, you hear about baseball, you say Babe Ruth. Yeah. Well, you would say Satchel Page because 1945, Satchel Page made a hundred, was making $50,000 a year in 1945, which would be equivalent to the money oh, they oh, make absolutely. today. Absolutely. Yeah. And Satchel played, I got a picture in my home in my, on the wall that he played with the, the uh, in Bismarck. Bismarck, North Dakota. Yeah. In 1936. Yes. Yeah, so he was a grown man in 36. I was born in 36. And I'm 86 years old. <laughs> so Satchel, there's no telling how old Satchel was. Satchel played, and then after I went in the Army, I got drafted in the Army in 1959, and Satchel, they were going to Canada to play then. And Satchel played after, after 52. He was in Canada. He played three or four innings a day. Yeah. 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 No, he was. He was pitching two or three innings almost every single day. Every day. day. Every day. And, and I, I tell people that, and you're right, Satchel Page was perhaps the biggest star in black baseball. And, and in many ways, he was the Negro Leagues because he drew the biggest crowd. Everybody wanted to see the old man pitch. And even at that time, as he's barnstorming, as you can well attest, those little towns would shut down right to watch Satchel. Right. right yeah. He, right. They were shut down. Right. And he was the drawing card 
and, and real quickly before we have to cut this off, Kansas City. What was it like when you got to Kansas City? Because Buck O'Neill said this. When he joined the Kansas City Monarchs in 1938, he said, I knew I was coming to the heart of America. But then he gets to 18th and Vine. He said, I never knew I was coming to the center of the universe because 18th and Vine and Kansas City was jumping. What was, what's your fondest memory of being in Kansas so, City? My fondest memory, when I played with the Monarchs, we only went to Kansas City one day. But the team that they don't talk about that my play with in 1959, I got to give them the prop, was the Memphis Red Sox. Yeah, the Memphis Red Sox. Because when you played with Memphis, you stayed on the road. Most of the teams in Kansas City, you, you stayed on the road the whole year. But yeah. in Memphis, you were more like organized ball. You, you stay on the road three weeks. Come home. And you come home. Dr. Martin, they owned the, the, for the last blacks to own the own baseball park. And we had rooms under the stadium. Mm. And had a ho- they had a hospital in Mississippi, and we had hospital beds. And for every two or three rooms, we had to pay telephone. Now, most of the youngsters, people don't know about that. They don't know about no pay phone. Yeah. Yeah, there used, yeah. used to be something that you actually had to put a quarter in to make a phone call. Uh, y'all, y'all Google that. <laughs> and not only that, you had a kitchen. You had a kitchen at the ballpark, and you had a washer and a dryer. See, because most of the teams, when you played, your motor was in the back of the bus. And when you played a game after you took a shower, you put your uniform in the back of the bus. And the next, when you got to the next town, you ride 500 miles, that uniform could almost stand up. It'd be smoking. <laughs> You'd have to go to the ballpark early and let the uniform dry out because you couldn't get close to the players. Yeah. But I was fortunate to play for a man named Dizzy William Dismute. Dizzy Dismute. And he was the one that introduced Buck to his wife. That's right. See, now Dismute was like Burke Chatton, who played with the Dodgers, who didn't wear a baseball uniform. Dismute wore a suit. And, all the time. And a beaver hat. Oh, all the time. He was clean. 100 degrees, yeah. Yeah, no, he, he was clean, a, though. Yeah, he'd be in the dugout, and Jim Robinson ran the team. But Dismute was a smart baseball man. He yes, was, he was. And he was a human, good human being because they used to, he was with the Monarch organization about 40 years. Yes. And yeah. he, you thought he was a preacher. <laughs> yeah. 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 He could talk. He was a real nice, mild-mannered man. And, and, and the, the, what, what, what Sam mentioned about Dizzy introducing Buck to his late wife, uh, Aura O'Neill, and Buck always told his story. And we'll end on this. Memphis, Tennessee, 1943. The Monarchs opened the season against the Memphis Red Sox. And, and Buck says the first time up, he doubled. The second time up, he hit the ball over left center field fence. Next time up, he single. The next time up, he hit the ball. It looked like it's going over the left center field fence. He's circling the bases in, hit the fence, hit the fence, hit, hit the fence. The ball hits the fence, ricochet between the left fielder and the, and the center fielder. He gets the third. They waving him home, but he stopped at third because he wanted to hit for the cycle. Yeah. Well, that evening, William Dizzy Dismuth, the Monarch's traveling secretary, had invited some young school teachers over to the hotel to have dinner with the ball players. He goes up and he knocks on Buck's door. He says, Buck, I got some people downstairs I want you to meet. Buck says, okay. Buck says he walks downstairs. He goes into the restaurant. 
he walks right over to a young lady and says, my name is Buck O'Neill. What's yours? That was Aura Lee Owens. They were married for 51 years. He always said that that was the greatest day in baseball for him, and it was indeed a pretty good day, and this has been a great day. I want you all to show a lot of love. Go, no, 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 wait, wait, Mr. Sierra says got one more thing. One more thing, I'll say. We're talking about Sacha Page being old. The 11, there's two people in the Negro League. Nobody knew how old they were. Sacha Page and Minnie Minnie. And we still don't know. We still don't know. Uh, y'all, put your hands together. Show some love for my Negro League family, the legendary Mr. Sam Allen and the legendary Pedro Sierra. Guys, thank you both for being on Black Guy. Thank you for everything that you continue to do to promote the legacy of the Negro League. This summer, help continue the legacy of Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill by visiting thanksamillionbuck.com. With one million donations of just a single buck or more, the Negro League's Baseball Museum can move closer to completion of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center on the historic site of the Paseo YMCA, where the Negro Leagues were born in 1920. We'll teach not only the stories of Negro League's baseball, but also math and science through the lens of baseball history in the spirit of baseball's greatest ambassador, Buck O'Neill. Log on to thanksamillionbuck.com and donate today. Every buck counts. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. SiriusXM Podcasts.